join with me in reading Genesis 33. Jacob looked up and saw that Esau was coming along with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the servants and their children in front, with Leah and her children behind them, and Rachel and Joseph behind them. But Jacob himself went on ahead of them, and he bowed toward the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, hugged his neck, and kissed him. Then they both wept. When Esau looked up and saw the woman and the children, he asked, Who are these people with you? Jacob replied, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. The female servants came forward with their children and bowed down. Then Leah came forward with her children, and they bowed down. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed down. Esau then asked, What did you intend by sending all these herds to meet me? <clears throat> Jacob replied, To find favor in your sight, my lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what belongs to you. No, please take them, Jacob said. If I have found favor in your sight, accept my gift from my hand. Now that I have seen your face and you have accepted me, it is as if I have seen the face of God. Please take my present that was brought to you, <clears throat> for God has been generous to me and I have all I need. When Jacob urged him, he took it. Then Esau said, let's be on our way. I will go in front of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are young, that I have to look after the sheep and cattle that are nursing their young. If they are driven too hard for even a single day, all the animals will die. Let my Lord go on ahead of his servant, and I will travel more slowly at the pace of the herds and the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, let me leave some of my men with you. Why do that? Jacob replied. My Lord has already been kind enough to me. So that same day, Esau made his way back to Seir, but Jacob traveled to Succoth where he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was called Succoth. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in a moment of silence. Lord, speak to us through your word and through the preaching of your word. We're listening. Amen. So we were first introduced to these two key characters, Jacob and Esau, in chapter 25. And, you know, we find ourselves in 33 now. So for, for a good chunk of the spring and then now all of the summer for about eight chapters, we have been navigating their story. And it has been a walk. Like, what, what a complicated, dysfunctional family story it has been up to this point. And just to kind of recap where we've come, how we got here, these two men, Jacob and Esau, they're twins. And the first thing we learn about them is that Jacob, the younger of the two twins, is favored by his mother, and Esau, the older of the twins, is favored by his father. So, you know, straight away, that is a chaotic ecosystem to grow up in, right? Like, I can't think of many instances where blatant favoritism inside a family system generates a healthy family environment. That just doesn't happen. And so then, as you might expect, at no point in our narrative do we see a unified family. We don't see close, chummy brothers. We never get that picture. In fact, the opposite is always true. 
the very first time scripture records Jacob and Esau in conversation with one another. Esau opens his mouth, and the way the Hebrew language kind of lays out what he says is just so Neanderthal. He's like, hungry, hungry, red stuff, red stuff. Like, we don't, we're not meant to have a high opinion of Esau in that moment. And Jacob chooses to, with the meal he's made, be withholding until he can leverage that for his own gain. Leverage Esau's hunger and apparent stupidity to steal his birthright, and that's what he does. The next scene of real consequence involving the two of them is another trick, where Jacob tricks his way into receiving the blessing of the firstborn, and then he runs away from the family. Esau's response to this is recorded in Genesis 27. It's a bit more articulate than the first time he spoke, and says, so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to his brother. Esau said privately, the time of mourning my father is near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And you know, that's bad enough. He's resolved to kill him, right? Well, the grammatical construction of this saying in Hebrew actually shows a picture of Esau just seething, just fuming, just hell-bent, dead resolve on killing Jacob. And that's the last we hear from Esau for a while. At this point in the narrative, their two storylines separate, and the narrative follows the story of Jacob for the next 20 years. And this is the entire family dynamic that we are made aware of between Jacob and Esau. There's nothing redemptive in that story. There's no, like, good times to look back on fondly. This is all we get from the two of them. And the narrative forks. So for the next 20 years, you know, what we've been covering in the last few chapters of Genesis, we've gotten Jacob's story. You know, where he settled next in the house of Laban, the wives he took, the wealth he accumulated, the children he had, all of these things we get in great detail about Jacob's story while Esau is just off somewhere. We're not hearing anything about him. But apparently he's still very much on the mind of Jacob because we don't really know why, but at this time, God tells Jacob and his family to pack up and go. And even more confusing, after 20 years, when God tells Jacob to pack up and go, he says, well, now's the appropriate time to initiate contact with Esau. Like, enough time has passed. Maybe I can talk to him and things will be okay. So as he's preparing to leave Laban's household with his wives and his children, he sends a messenger on ahead to initiate this contact with Esau, but he doesn't send his messenger empty-handed, you know. Jacob's really clever. He knows how to manipulate a situation. He knows how to get what he wants, and so he sends some, some, some gifts along with his messenger to Esau, again, hopefully to smooth things out. He sends sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants, you know, you know kind of making monetary reparations for the birthright that he stole. And then the messenger meets with Esau. We don't get any indication of what that meeting was like, but the messenger comes back and reports to Jacob and tells Jacob the thing I'm sure he least wanted to hear. He said, Esau's on his way. He's coming out to meet you, but he's not coming alone. There's 400 men he's bringing with him. That can surely only mean one thing, right? Like this grieved, 
brother who has resolved to kill Jacob is coming out to meet him with 400 men behind him. That can only mean one thing. And Jacob has no army. There's, there's, there's really no way he could possibly hope to repel Esau and his men. And so we, we see this uh, chapter earlier in chapter 32 when Jacob like divides his family into two camps, really just cutting his losses. Like, well, while one camp is being attacked, perhaps the other one will have the time they need to escape. And you know, he kind of divides him up into like JV and varsity, like who he likes the most and who he likes the least, and puts the who I like the least out in front. And so, you know, this can only charitably be described as a crummy move, but it's all he can do. He's just deciding to cut his losses. And so then he waits for the inevitable, the meeting with Esau. And our text today, starting in chapter 1, decides to preserve the suspense and the anxiety of this scene. First words, Jacob looked up and saw that Esau was coming along with his 400 men. Like, like it's here. Like, calamity's made its way. Like, this is the scene of slaughter. And so, kind of enacting his plan, he then starts frantically dividing up his family. You know, our text is just not kind to Jacob. He puts the maidservants and their children out front, and then kind of, like, layers back based on who his favorites are. Like, he's, he's a product of favoritism, and now he's building a human shield of his least favorite people. It's just, like, guy, not cool. But, I suppose to his credit, he then decides the best last strategy to stave off this calamity is to move in front of the entire camp and bow down low seven times to Esau, hoping that it will generate some kind of compassionate response in Esau. Or, you know, maybe Esau will only kill Jacob and spare everyone else. And then, as you might expect to initiate a conflict, Jacob looks up and Esau charges. But Esau, the skilled hunter, the gifted warrior, chooses while charging never to unsheathe his sword, never to pull back on his bow, but he reaches Jacob, he grabs him, and he hugs him. You know when you're like sucked into a novel and it's like a real page turner in the like narratival tension has been like mounting to just like a boiling over point and then there's this this twist and this gasp well in our long narrative that we've spent the last few months going over this is that point where we expect calamity we see compassion which just doesn't make sense because the last time we saw Esau, he's fuming, he's seething, he is incensed, and he's hell-bent on killing Jacob. And now at his first chance to do just that, he reaches him and he throws his arm around him. And like his tenderness towards his brother goes further, he kisses him, they weep together. Esau looks up and notices Jacob's family, you know, arranged in order of least favorite first, but asks, like, who, who are these people? Introduce me to your family. And then after Jacob does that, Esau kindly insists, like, why'd you send me all those gifts? I have more than enough. Like, I have everything I need. Like, keep your stuff. I'm fine. He just wants to be reunited with his brother. And if I'm honest, I have been positively driven 
crazy by that this week because no one knows why Esau did this. Commentaries, articles, language studies, none of it has helped. There is no clear evidence as to why Esau had such a radical change of heart. Because we think like forgiveness on this scale demands an explanation, doesn't it? So I've been haunted by Esau's response. And this might sound an unusual thing coming from a pastor, but forgiveness like this can feel like death. Like it can feel impossibly difficult. You know, just out of curiosity, I started looking up like some quotes. Like, oh, what have some like really thoughtful thinkers said about forgiveness? Hopefully like they can give me a little peek into what was going on. And there were so many like general, like ethereal quotes spoken in, in like frustratingly like common and simple ways like like, forgiveness is good for the soul. Like, you know, you experience newness when you forgive. You come alive. And like, yeah, for sure, that's definitely true. I'm not saying it's not. But I, I kind of wanted just one person to say, like, forgiveness can really suck. Like, when you've, uns- when you, when you've experienced unspeakable evil or deep tragedy and you're navigating the consequences of that, forever, forgiveness feels like an unreasonable ask. It feels like an impossible task. And that's why many of us find it really helpful when trying to offer forgiveness to kind of investigate the point further. Like, then we can get to the point where we can say, oh, it was just a misunderstanding, helps me rationalize. Or, oh, it was just a miscommunication, I get it now. Or, you know, perhaps like, oh, that person was deeply wounded in their past, And they hurt me out of a place of pain. You know, at least I I know a bit more about them. Like the only thing that we can do to make the concept of forgiving more palatable is to rationalize the offense or to rationalize the behavior of the offender. But not here, not in Genesis 33. We get nothing. We don't have any cause to rationalize Esau's activity. And yet we see life-altering, power-releasing forgiveness. Um, Peter had an interesting, the Apostle Peter had an interesting conversation with forgiveness with Jesus. And I I, I draw a great deal of comfort from that interaction um, because it feels so delightfully human. It feels so wonderfully relatable, the things that they talked about. Um, in, In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus, like, how many times should I forgive? And then he, like, posits a guess, like, would seven do it? Like, is seven enough times to forgive? And when you realize that in this time, in rabbinic tradition, uh, three times, forgiving an offender three times was the expected norm. In fact, you were freed from the obligation of forgiving after the fourth offense. And so what Peter is suggesting is actually quite generous. You know, he's going beyond the three. He's doubling it plus one. Like, would seven do it? He's being generous in his offer, but also kind of drawing a definitive line. Like, I can push myself beyond the rabbinic expectation, but I need to know that at least at some point I can be done. Like, this is exhausting to think about. And Jesus, in his response... In, 
an idea that we, we hold up as a true value in the church and one of the more lovely things he said, but also one of the more demanding and difficult things he said, you know, in kind of a, an Aramaic turn of phrase, like, oh, 70 times 7, just never-ending. There's, 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 it, it's never okay to stop forgiving. Forgiveness always has to outpace the offense. So how do we do this? If everything I just said about the pain and difficulty of forgiveness is true, then how do we possibly get to that point? Perhaps the best question to ask is, well, what keeps us from forgiving? Well, a lot. For some, it can feel really good to be angry and hold an offense over someone's head. Like, okay, like the the power scales have shifted. And for right now, yeah, you've hurt me, but they, they're in my favor. So I enjoy this power dynamic. You have done wrong to me, and you owe me, and I'm going to make sure that I get what I'm owed. That's some of us. For others, for a lot, the hurt is just too deep. The, the offense was just too intense, where you think, like, no way. Can I offer you absolution for this? Because I can't even begin to imagine pardoning what you've done. Still, for another group, they look at the offender and think, like, well, you're just not sorry enough. Like, I don't see the depth of remorse in you that would elicit forgiveness on my heart. So, like, no way. I'm not going to forgive you until I see adequate, appropriate, necessary remorse. Maybe one of those things has been true of your forgiving past. Maybe that's true of you right now. I can say for sure that each of those has defined my story at one time or another. Then I heard a simple one-line quote from C.S. Lewis that quite literally changed my life. Not a lot of quotes have. This one did. And, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm a perfect forgiver now because I, I'm not. Um, but this did help frustrate an unhealthy rhythm and pattern in my life and initiate a much healthier one. So, okay, it's up. This is what C.S. Lewis says. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I found that language of the inexcusable really helpful because we define a lot of things as inexcusable. We put a lot of things within that category. You know, kind of relating to what I just said, the reasons we don't forgive, uh, we could say it's inexcusable for you to not pay me back for what you've done. It's inexcusable that you don't settle the, settle the scale, settle our accounts. That's inexcusable. Or it's inexcusable that you have acted in such a sinister or selfish or abusive way. Or it's inexcusable that you're not even sorry for what you've done. The inexcusable, however you define it, can act as a serious hindrance for us to forgive. But to resign your place, yourself to a place where you can say God has first forgiven all of the inexcusable things in you will change. In the early 1900s, uh, the London newspaper, The Times, uh, put out an inquiry to famous authors and thinkers in the area uh, asking a simple question, what's wrong with the world? 
And G.K. Chesterton, who was a famous Christian author at the time, he's written some of my favorite books, responded simply, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. We will not forgive anyone if we don't first see ourselves as the worst offenders, forgiven the inexplicable, inexplicable, inexcusable by a merciful God. So what's wrong with the world today? I am. I hope we can all arrive at a place where that is sincerely said by us. Now, truth be told, that was going to That was going to be it. That was going to be my sermon. When outlining my message, this is where I ended and thought, well, like, there it is. Jacob and Esau, a master class case study in overwhelming forgiveness without explanation. Like, how lovely. Good for us to see. That's that's a nice reminder. But, you know, then I read the story again. Realized we have a lot of story that we haven't talked about yet. The story isn't over. And in fact, we, we haven't probably even gotten to the main message or the main point of the story. So we continue. Did you happen to notice in our text how Jacob responded to Esau after this initial embrace? Like he keeps everything so formal in the way they communicate with each other going on. Like there's nothing familiar, there's nothing fraternal in the way that they communicate with one another. Like Esau addresses Jacob so tenderly and he's like, my brother. And Jacob in response says, my Lord, my Lord, uh, I'm your servant. Like, it, it, it's so formal. It's not familial in any way. And even when Esau insists, like, I have plenty. I'm content with all that I have. Jacob insists over and over again, no, 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 take it. Please take it. If, if your servant has found favor in the, the sight of my Lord, accept the gift. Like, I am desperately trying to balance the scales here. So, like, take the gift and then, like, maybe I'll really trust that we're okay. And Esau then eventually does, but then makes an insistence of his own. Like, why don't you come with me to Sire? Why don't you follow me to my home? Let me host you. And Jacob responds with, you know, something reasonable, but I think still kind of crafty. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You go on ahead. I'll be behind you. My kids are small, so they travel slow. I have a lot of, like, nursing cattle so they travel slow so you go on ahead i'll be right behind you esau responds with even more kindness and generosity he's like well i have all these guys if you haven't noticed i can leave some of them with you that can help with your livestock and with your kids as you travel and jacob again you know thinking maybe for the first time he's just balanced the scales rejects like no 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 again you go on ahead you take your men with you I'll be right behind you. We're going to move slow, but yeah, I'll come to your home. You can host me. So as Esau continues on, the expectation is that Jacob is tracking right behind him, following him to his home. And then we see perhaps the most tragic line in the story after what seemed to be really lovely reconciliation. You put it up. So that same day, Esau made his way back to Sire. But Jacob traveled to Sukkoth, where he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. Jacob never showed up. He leads Esau to believe he's right behind him. And then he stands him up. After this 
radical, impressive act of humility, generosity, and forgiveness by Esau, Jacob still will not trust his brother. He sends Esau off believing that he's going to now get to host his reconciled family. He's going to get to spend more time with his sisters-in-law and his nieces and his nephews. I mean, you, you can imagine Esau going ahead and making preparations to host, like probably preparing a pretty lavish feast, making ready accommodations for them to stay. And Jacob never shows up. Jacob and Esau never meet again. This scene, Genesis 33, this is the last time they're ever together. This is the last time they ever communicate with one another. Esau extended forgiveness. Cool, awesome. And Jacob rejected that reconciliation. And for us, much of what Genesis did for the first readers and for the generations that follow is kind of explain how the world got to be the way that it is. And when you consider that, that Jacob was the ancestral father of Israel and Esau was the ancestral father of Edom, their collective history starts to make a lot more sense. They're, they're neighboring nations. They're just divided by the Dead Sea. They border each other. And for their entire collective history, there is violent conflict between those two nations. There is deep-seated hatred that are lobbed both sides. And part of me, if I'm honest, on Edom's part, like, kind of gets it. Like, Edom looks at Israel and says, your patriarch stole our father's blessing, and then he stole his birthright. And when Esau tried to make amends and forgive him and welcome him into his home, Jacob so deeply, intensely dishonored him, embarrassed him, never showed up. And so generation after generation after generation of Edomites are horrifically, like, pretty gross, violent to the Israelites. When the prophets later point out all the wicked things that the neighboring nations have done to Israel and the way God is going to protect the nation, no other nation gets more mention than Edom. As small as they are, as relatively insignificant on the global stage as they were, no other nation gets more of a shout-out than Edom. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Malachi, Joel, all have something to say about the horrific violence of Edom towards Israel. In fact, the entire book of Obadiah is about this horrific pattern of hostility between the two nations. I mean, look, look how it was said in verse 10 of Obadiah 1. You violently slaughtered your relatives, the people of Jacob. Amos also has something to say when he, about Edom. He chased his brother with a sword. He wiped out his allies. In his anger, he tore them apart without stopping to rest. In his fury, he relentlessly attacked them. Notice how the prophets, and these two in particular, preserve the familial language, like the closeness of these two nations. They always, in both of their history, remain closely linked. But after this episode that we read of Jacob and Esau, Esau's descendants launch wave after wave after wave of attack with this personal vendetta. 
And you wonder, can't help but not wonder, if this would be different if Jacob had, in fact, gone with Esau, if he had, in fact, followed him to his home and let him host, if he had accepted the forgiveness offered, if he would have embraced the reconciliation made possible and humbled himself enough to be in Esau's home. You know, obviously we'll never know. But one thing that often goes overlooked in our conversation, especially within the church about forgiveness, is just how difficult it can be to receive forgiveness. You know, we kind of always think of ourselves on on the side of, of offering it, and that's really lovely. We need to talk about that. In fact, we did talk about that. But it can be really, really quite difficult to receive forgiveness and embrace reconciliation. It's a humbling process. Because shame will lie to you. Shame will tell you that the person offering forgiveness will never see you as anything other than this again. Shame will tell you that a real relationship from now on is out of reach. Like perhaps we can reach a tentative peace and give each other passive neglect for the rest of our lives. That's what shame tells you is possible on the other side of forgiveness. Uh, several, several years ago, um, one, of my, one of my siblings just kind of shook me to my core um, when a, a scheme was uncovered. And that's, you know, as specific as I'm going to be. And I always held this person up as a real moral exemplar in the family. And so when this came to light, I was just, I was gutted. I felt betrayed. I was so disappointed. And this person, um, after being found out, did offer just instant remorse. You know, just like deep pain for what they'd done. And we, as honestly as we could, offered immediate forgiveness. And yet the, the prospect, the process of entering into reconciliation presented itself as a really daunting and scary and hard thing. This, this person kept their distance for a long time. And we finally, we finally convinced them to come see the family. And we were beating the drum over and over again. We forgive you. We forgive you. We forgive you. We forgive you. We want you to be reconciled to the family. And there was just this this hesitancy, like, I don't think I can. I don't think we can ever go back to being the siblings that we were. And when this person drove away, I I like broke down. Because I, I was certain, like, I don't think I'm ever going to see this person again. Even though like they're driving away and I have made it as clear as I can, like I forgive you and I want a relationship. The process of rebuilding was just scary. It's hard. Shame will tell you that I will be this in relation to you forever. When we truly see the reality of our sin and we honestly gaze at the brokenness that lingers within each of us, it's a lot. Again, I I draw a great deal of comfort from many of Peter's scenes. Uh, There's a few more. Like The first time he meets Jesus and Jesus calls him, What does Peter do? He's not like, oh, thank you. Like, I was really hoping you would do this. No, Peter drops to his knees and says, go away. Be gone. I'm a sinner. Like, I can't can't handle this proximity because I'm aware of the brokenness that is within me. In another Peter scene, uh, after the resurrection, Peter and Jesus are sitting on the beach together eating breakfast. And Peter has denied Jesus right before his crucifixion, has been 
caught in doing it by Jesus, and Jesus is offering him restoration. And the text doesn't say that Peter, you know, is overwhelmed with joy and he's so happy. No, it says he hides his face in distress. Even upon receiving forgiveness, the act of reconciliation can be a painful and a daunting and a hard thing. Shame will tell you that it's not possible. Shame will tell you that even forgiveness, when sincerely offered, can't mend what was broken. I am grateful to say that the table tells us a different story. You know, everything about the table, as we come to it each week, is a reminder of our failure, right? Like, what are the first words we say when we institute communion? It was on the night that he was betrayed. Like, that's our failure. We betrayed him. And then we say, this is my body broken for you. Like, bodies aren't supposed to do that. That's our failure. This is my blood shed for you. Blood's not supposed to do that either. Everything about this meal is a reminder of our failure. But then what are the words we say directly after we're made keenly aware of our failure? This is a new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In that one line, we get covenantal language. We get reconciled relationship language. And it's reinforced by the forgiveness offered. Jesus is the offended one who offered overwhelming forgiveness without explanation and made possible relational reconciliation. So then our job, our only job, is to embrace that process. Scary as it might be, daunting as it might seem to humble yourself to the point of accepting forgiveness, that's all that's asked of us. Follow him to his home. Let him host. Enjoy his feast. He's made ready preparations for you. And it's in that space we're invited to celebrate a new, regenerated relationship. So don't let shame lie to you. When we come to the, sa- when we come to the table, yes, I invite you. See with clear eyes the brokenness that lingers in you. See how you have offended God. But see his response of covenant and forgiveness to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being so patient with us. Time and time and time again, we have offended you. We have broken relationship with you. You have invited us to feast with you, and we just went somewhere else because we were afraid. Let your table, let your gospel tell us a new and better story. So as best we can, with help of the Holy Spirit, we receive with gratitude. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.